This forum is part of the City Club's Health Equity Series, sponsored by the St. Luke's Foundation and the Sisters of Charity Foundation. We are grateful for their generous support. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here and proud member. It's Tuesday, November 30th, and happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. I am pleased to bring to you today's virtual City Club Forum, which is the Medical Mutual of Ohio Endowed Forum on Healthcare. It is the final forum of the year, part of our Health Equity Series, as well as our Author in Conversation Series. Today, we are joined by Julie Patterson, Director of the AIDS Funding Collaborative, and she will introduce our speaker and moderator. Julie? And good afternoon. I'm the Director of the AIDS Funding Collaborative. We're a public-private funding partnership designed to strengthen the community's response to HIV AIDS in Greater Cleveland. Our funding partners include the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board of Cuyahoga County, the City of Cleveland, the Cleveland Foundation, Cuyahoga County, the George Gunn Foundation, and the Mount Sinai Health Foundation. On behalf of the AIDS Funding Collaborative, we're proud partners with the City Club in hosting this virtual forum, the ripple that became a tidal wave, HIV AIDS activism and the transformative power of safety nets. Tomorrow, December 1st is World AIDS Day. This past June marks the 40th year since the first reported US cases of what would later be recognized as HIV AIDS. And a lot has changed in the last four decades. Although it's still a disease of inequality, HIV AIDS is no longer a death sentence. Rather, the remarkable conversion of HIV AIDS to a manageable chronic illness is one of the most noteworthy political, medical, and social achievements of the past 40 years. This is a critical moment in the history of HIV response. We can end the HIV epidemic in Greater Cleveland, and we have a plan to do it that mobilizes resources and invests in people, which is why I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest. Dr. Celeste Watkins-Hayes is Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and founding director of the Center for Racial Justice at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. She's author of Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV AIDS Confront Inequality. Her book, in her book, she outlines the importance of activism and community leadership that led the way in addressing the HIV AIDS pandemic. She also talks about the power of people living with HIV to, to confront inequality and issues a call to action to address the inequities and challenges that persist. So how can the HIV AIDS safety net be used as a model for confronting public health threats through the lens of inequality on many fronts, including the COVID-19 pandemic? And what does the HIV movement offer as a reminder of the power of ordinary citizens to transform their lives and change the world? Joining us as moderator for today is Marlene Harris-Taylor, reporter and managing producer of the health team at IdeaStream Public Media. She's also on the board of directors for the Association of Healthcare Journalists and Press Club of Cleveland. If you have questions for Dr. Watkins-Hayes, text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we'll try to work them in. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, Marlene and Celeste.
Thank you so much, Julie. I appreciate that introduction. Celeste, it's so wonderful to have an opportunity to speak with you today. And I hope it's okay that I call you Celeste. Absolutely. It <laughs> is um, my honor to be here, my honor to be here in conversation with you, Marlene. And I want to thank Julie for that excellent introduction and setting of the table for us on World AIDS Day and for her amazing work that she's doing at the AIDS Funding Collaborative. So thank you to Julie and Marlene. It is my honor to be in conversation with someone with the profile and career that you've had. So thank you for inviting me here. Oh, thank you so much. Ditto. I feel the same way about you. So let me start, Celeste, with talking about the fact that, you know, Julie mentioned that tomorrow is World AIDS Day, 40th anniversary. She gave, uh, you know, an overview of where we are in fighting this disease at this point in this country in particular. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Where are we now, 40 years later, into this struggle? That's such an important question because I think that there are so often times that we are inundated with problems and challenges that in, seem insurmountable. And what this 40th anniversary does for us is it allows us to pause and take stock. And there are some good things to talk about and some success stories to talk about within the fight against HIV. And of course, I'm gonna talk about the work that still needs to be done and the challenges that we've had around that. But I wanna start with some of the successes. So essentially, as Julie pointed out in the introduction and as I write about in my book, Remaking a Life, the remarkable conversion of HIV AIDS from a death sentence to a manageable chronic illness is not only one of the most impressive medical achievements, but it's also one of the most impressive political and social achievements that we've seen in the last 40 years. Why do I say that? Let's start with the medical. The notion that we have been able to develop the biomedical tools to extend people's lives who are living with HIV to the point that they pretty much have normal life expectancies is critically important. Our creation of highly active antiretroviral therapy or ART, as, as you might hear it. For people who are living with HIV, this is a lifeline. This allows them to live longer, but it also means that if individuals living with HIV are taking their medications as prescribed and they have undetectable viral loads, meaning we can't detect HIV in the blood due to the effectiveness of the medications, they can't sexually transmit HIV. That is a major accomplishment. And then we also have another biomedical tool that's critically important, which is PrEP, pre-exposure pro pre prophylaxis. For, so that's for people who are HIV negative, who want to uh, find a way, in addition to condoms and other strategies that they may use, want to have another strategy that allows an individual to protect oneself from HIV acquisition. So people can take a pill and essentially prevent HIV acquisition. So those two tools are critical in terms of the medical accomplishment. How did that happen? Yes, it was the scientists and medical doctors, but it was also the activists. It was the people who were living and struggling with HIV AIDS, many of whom died, passed away before they were able to see this point in medical achievement many of whom laid their bodies on the line, people who were their allies gathering together to create a social movement, a social movement that pushed science, a social movement that pushed our federal 
uh, bureaucracies, a, a movement that pushed our government, a movement that pushed the wider public to take AIDS on and HIV on as a critically important issue to be tackled. So the idea that a, a group of people, many of whom were socially marginalized, who were able to move the needle, to move science, to move medicine, to move uh, governments on federal, state, local levels, who were able to change public hearts and minds, to get us to the point where we would have the economic and scientific investment to have the tools that we now have to medically fight HIV, that is an outstanding social and political achievement. And I really think it's important at this moment in our 40th anniversary of the discovery of HIV to acknowledge that work, that activism, that community work that was done. That's, but we that's, still have it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. The story that you just told, that is an amazing accomplishment to think about, to your point, the medical advances that have happened in these past 40 years. I think about when, you know, we first started talking about AIDS in the community as a community conversation. It was such a dire diagnosis back then. I wonder, you know, you talk about in your book that you know, at, at the beginning that this was perceived as a white gay male disease. Yes. AIDS in the beginning. I wonder how important that was to the trajectory of how uh, this, uh, the, the great news mm -hmm. and medical advances that we've seen. Is, is, is that a part of it at all? The fact that it was considered a white male gay disease? It is a very important part of the story. And here's what that meant. So when the earliest cases were discovered and documented, they were among white gay male patients. And there was a way in which that community very much then understood HIV as an existential threat. Think about the work of Larry Kramer and people who were sounding the alarm within the gay community that this could wipe the community out. So that community very much kind of took this on as a critical issue and were fighting against forces that were apathetic, that were um, not interested in talking about what was happening and were really encouraging ignorance and silence in a lot of ways. So that mobilized people and made it so that the community really understood this needed to be taken on. But sometimes we forget within the history of HIV that there were also black and brown LGBTQ folks. There were women in the fight. There were transgender people in the fight. There were people who didn't have the economic means in the fight. In fact, as the HIV coalition grew and grew, it became much more diverse and it really had to work through those questions of how do you build an effective movement when the face of it looks one way, but we know the people that are impacted disproportionately may look another way. And at the same time, how do you acknowledge that while white, gay, middle-class men may have been and were absolutely struggling with sexual marginalization and homophobia, acute homophobia, they nevertheless also had racial privilege often economic privilege and often gender privilege on their side. So there was a way in which they could use their political and economic and cultural capital to move through institutions to make things happen. So one of the conversations that my students often have when they see a film like How to Survive a Plague, the storied film around HIV activism, is they see the activists who are, you know, laying out on the Washington Mall and doing all kinds of direct action campaigns. And one of the conversations we have is, what would have happened if those were mostly black and brown people? 
act in, in terms of direct action, in terms of storming the FDA and storm in terms of um, uh, running up to politicians and taking them to task in very, very forceful ways. I can imagine there might have been a different outcome. Celeste. There might have been a different outcome, <laughs> right, in terms of who gets to push and who gets to push hard. Mm -hmm. So it's what's so interesting about the HIV story is that we need to make room for both the experiences of extreme marginalization and subjugation that people were experiencing. Because when we talk about the early HIV activists, those, those white gay male that gay men that were often off in front, they will tell you about their loss of family and jobs and status and all sorts of things when they came out as HIV positive or HIV activists. It also became a moment often where they were coming out too about their sexuality and everything that they lost as a result. But we also have to acknowledge the way that that privilege operated in terms of the political and, and social movement that we've been able to see. And then to ask ourselves, what about the role of other people, of women, of people of color, of poor people, of transgender people in that conversation? And my book brings that broader. Community. Yeah, I was just going to say your book takes that head on and you focus your current research and latest book. You focus on black women with HIV and AIDS. So why did you pick black women in particular? Well, when we look at women in the United States, black women are disproportionately affected when we look at the HIV numbers. Black women are about 13% of the population of women in the United States, but they're over 60% of the HIV cases. Stunning and shocking. Oh numbers. my God, that is just- Stunning and shocking numbers. That's almost, your mind can't even take that in. It's exactly. such a huge disparity. Right, right. When we look at the population of women of who are living with HIV, and we know that that happens due to the drivers of inequality. We know that Black women are more likely to have limited access to health care. So all of those biomedical tools that I talked about at the beginning of the talk, whether it's access to PrEP, um, black women are finding themselves least prepped, if you will, in terms of access to the information, their doctors recommending it, prescribing it, et cetera. The take up is very, very low among black women, even in the face of their numbers, their HIV numbers. We know that if you don't have access to healthcare, you might not have access to testing. If you are diagnosed HIV positive, the question of do you have a physician or a healthcare provider who's gonna walk with you in that walk long-term and have that, that relationship with you that helps you age with HIV. Black women are the group least likely to have that um, among women. And when we think about the social conditions and environments in which Black women find themselves in terms of poverty, in terms of living in lower resource communities, in terms of living in communities that are disproportionately impacted by the drug trade. And we want to remind ourselves drug use happens across race, class, um, gender, et cetera, in all walks of life, but in terms of where the trade itself is concentrated um, and where the criminal justice system is concentrated and where that disruptiveness is concentrated, it's often in communities occupied by Black women. So those forces yeah. make for a situation of extreme vulnerability for Black women in terms of they may be in relationships with people who have connections to the drug trade. And we know that HIV, we know that intravenous drug use, for example, is a significant risk factor. We know I was gonna, that I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, some people may think automatically, well, these black women are getting AIDS, HIV from inter, intravenous drug use. 
And that's not necessarily the case. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm, that's part of the picture, of course. Right, right, right. Black women are getting HIV because of something that all of us and many of us do, heterosexual sex. So that is the number one driver of HIV among Black women and among women in general. It's not intravenous drug use. So from so your partners. You, yeah. Right. So, when so, do, think, so is that the, uh, you know, you've heard people talk about the down low syndrome mm -hmm. in the African-American community. Is that real? Is that a real factor that, that men who are gay and in the closet or men who are bisexual are possibly bringing this to black women or what has your research showed you? Mm -hmm. what, what we've seen is it's a much more complicated story. So is it the case that some women, black women acquired HIV in relationships with men who were also having sex with other men? Yes, it does happen. Is that the main driver? Turns out it's not. We think what's happening is it's the impact of the drug epidemic that's driving a lot of this. Because what we're seeing is when you look at communities like lower income white communities that have been hit hard by say the opioid crisis, we see a lot of the same dynamics where it's not you know men on the down low in Scott County, Indiana, a white rural community, white working class community that just had a major HIV outbreak a couple of years ago. It was the fact that within that a community under siege from the drug trade, people were having sexual relationships maybe with someone who was an intravenous drug user or someone who had sex with someone who's an intravenous drug user or the networks in terms of our social networks and our sexual networks intertwine in a lot of different ways. So it may not be about men on the down low or promiscuity. In fact, we're finding that black women actually don't have significantly more sexual partners than their white counterparts. It's that when they're having sex, they're operating within a network that is that is more likely to have higher HIV transmission rates because of the lack of access to economic resources and the reliance on um, the drug trade and all those different dynamics. And also the fact that black women are the group most likely to date um, across socioeconomic class and status. Um, so they're dating middle-class women, for example, may date a middle-class person, but they also may date a working-class or low-income person who may have less access to mm -hmm. resources for help, for sexual health. Now, does so, incarceration play into this at all? Incarceration of Black men? Incarceration absolutely plays a critical role. And we think that part of the dynamic, and we often imagine this image of a man in prison and having sexual relationships with people in prison and then kind of bringing it back home. But what we think is actually happening in prisons is the disruptiveness of men going to prison for women's sexual relationships. So if you're in a relationship with someone, that person gets incarcerated, you're more likely to end that relationship or put it on hold and then start a new relationship. And then when that person is released, you go back to that relationship. And there becomes this kind of disruptive cyclical effect on relationships that we think also creates this context for HIV transmission. So part of what we're trying to think about when we think about ending the epidemic is yes, thinking, talking to people about their individual behavior, thinking about PrEP, using condoms, um, not using intravenous drugs. And if you are using intravenous drugs to use clean needles, et cetera, um, and to make sure that we have um, needle exchange services available for people. But really what we're thinking about is how do we identify the higher risk social networks 
where we think that the transmission is more likely because of the conditions within the network and the low, so the saying, high vulnerability of the people in the network. So you're saying that really there needs to be a look at the systems, a systemic yes. approach. What are the systemic barriers that are perpetuating this disparity over and over again and not looking at individual behaviors? Exactly, exactly. Because what happens when we look at individual behaviors is sometimes we get into a blame game and we also don't always recognize how people's agency can be limited. So as I write in my book, um, one of the things that a lot of my respondents grappled with is drug use. So it, it seems easy for us to say, well, you know, that's the problem, don't use drugs. But in fact, what I discovered was that women were using drugs to self-medicate. Mm. So they were walking around with undiagnosed trauma, whether it was sexual abuse at a young age, whether it was domestic violence experiences, whether it was just the economic struggle and just the psychological impact that has on people to live in poverty and to live without for so long, or what we found is people were dealing with um, undiagnosed mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, et cetera. So when people have those issues and it goes unaddressed, people will find other ways to ease their pain. And oftentimes drugs and sex are the way to ease pain, mm -hmm. not realizing that when you're using drugs, you also have lower in inhibitions. And yeah. that might mean that you're not using that condom. That might mean that you're not taking prep con uh, consistently. That might mean that you're not going in regularly to get tested. And what we found is by the time women had been diagnosed HIV positive, there had often been a long history of institutional traumas and interpersonal traumas that they had already experienced. And the diagnosis was just one of many traumas that women had experienced, particularly so like economically marginalized women. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no problem. Uh, it sounds like you're describing Dawn, who's one of the women featured yes. in your book. And we should mention that, you know, you did research over a decade yes. for this book, talked to hundreds of women interviewed women, um, heard their stories, and you decided to feature four women mm -hmm. in your book. And Dawn is one of them who her story is just, I have to tell you, her story is riveting. And you start off talking about Dawn in your introduction. And so, as I said, you sounded like you were just describing her a moment ago. Can you talk about Dawn a little bit and why you chose her as the woman that you would start the book with? Yes. So Dawn does have that history of um, sexual trauma at a very young age. Um, she also has a history of, you know, really struggled with drug use, lived on the streets for some time, engaged in sex work for survival, had been incarcerated, um, had lost custody of her children, had um, kind of distanced herself from family, had had a real struggle. And Dawn said something to me that really becomes the puzzle of the book, which is, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. That's the opening line of the book. Yes, and we heard yes. that from so many women. So that begs the question, why would, say, why would someone say that? Why would an illness responsible for the deaths of over 30 million people globally be credited by Dawn for saving her life? 
particularly when we know that there is this is still a highly stigmatized illness in our society. And what Dawn was saying was that her access to resources only occurred after she was diagnosed HIV positive. In the course of the, the book, I talk about Dawn finding a place called St. Mary's. It was a housing facility for women who were living with HIV and battling addiction. St. Mary's got her access to long-term housing, got her access to medical services, not just HIV medical services, but mental health services, because I submit to you what Dawn needed from the beginning were mental health services that she just never received. And that's um, amazing that she did not have access to those until her diagnosis, which is right. mind-blowing as well. Right. And part of this is the way the HIV safety net works in its best forms. So the HIV safety net is this kind of amalgamation of people and policies and, and institutions that are doing work in the HIV community. And what they have figured out very effectively is that people need access to healthcare services, economic support services, um, social support, so case management, support groups, peer services, other people who have walked their walk successfully and can give advice and guidance, but also and the fourth thing that the HIV community does very well is it gives people an on-ramp to political um, education and, and political engagement. So it teaches people how to use their own stories to speak truth to power, to advocate for themselves, to advocate for others, to tell their stories, to educate others. It's been a critical part of the HIV movement from its, from its inception. The only way we're going to get services, the only way we're going to move the needle on science is we have to tell our stories. So, you know, and Don also represents like one of the central themes of your book, which is, um, you know, dying, whether how women move along the spectrum of dying from AIDS to living from, with, to living with, to to thriving, thriving despite. So yeah. what Dawn was saying is when she was dealing with all that struggle, Marlene, she was dying from. So by the time she was HIV, when she, by the time she understood her di HIV diagnosis, she wasn't just dying from HIV AIDS. She was dying from all those other things that I described. St. Mary's helped her to learn how to live with HIV getting her access to all of those services, everything from medication to healthcare providers, social support, all those things I described. And then St. Mary's taught her how to use her story to influence others, to move to thriving despite, to be able to think of one story from a position of power and to be able to use it for a larger social purpose. So in the book, I talk about this movement from dying from to living with to thriving despite. And I credit the HIV community for showing people how to do that and offering the services to undergird it. Because it's not just about Dawn deciding I'm going to change my life, but it's really about her deciding that, but there being a safety net to catch her and to give her that support so that she was able to do that. So when Dawn says, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. She's really saying, if it weren't for the HIV community, if it weren't for the policies like the Ryan White Care Act that gets me access to healthcare medications, if it weren't for the support group meetings where women held my hand and told me it was gonna be okay, if it weren't for St. Mary's telling me, you should tell your story and we're gonna to go to AIDS Watch in Washington DC to talk to policymakers, why don't you come with us? That's what she's saying is what, is what changed her life. So I think that the HIV safety net really gives broader lessons to us in terms of how do we assist 
marginalized populations by building safety nets, but also building safety nets that launch people. You know, and I think one of the other things that you express uh, in the book and some concern you have is that there's a possibility that this safety net might be weakened because there's sort of this perception in the country now that because of the of the drugs that you mentioned earlier, that, well, you know, the AIDS thing, it's kind of under control now, even though it's not. And we've talked about the disparity here, mm -hmm. that there are many groups, many people still struggling, but that there might be some loss of will and, and money taken away. Right. And it's just not on our front pages anymore in the same way. And we're not seeing people visually walking around with who are visibly gr grappling with HIV. But we have to remember, we still have 40,000 new HIV cases every year in the United States, 40,000. We still are grappling with its dis disparate impacts. So HIV is increasingly impacting. It's always impacted, but we definitely are seeing its impact on low income populations. We're seeing its impact, particularly among gay um, uh, and bisexual men of color um, who weren't, who haven't had access to the resources that white gay men have had and are feeling the effects of that in terms of the HIV numbers. We're seeing this in terms of transgender populations um, where this is a group that is routinely, systematically shut out of economic support, assistance, jobs, housing, et cetera. So when people don't have access to jobs, when they don't have access to housing, when they're facing all kinds of discrimination, they often will use the underground economy to take care of themselves. And we know, as I said, that economy is often a, a, an environment of heightened vulnerability, particularly for HIV infection. So what worries me is as this recedes from our front pages and as the most resourced among those who find themselves at risk for HIV, people of economic means, um, white gay men who largely have access, middle class who have those access to resources. I worry about the political capital and the economic and social capital to sustain the movement and also to sustain the policy. Because we know if policies don't have advocates who are considered important citizens in our country, the policies that target that, that, that are available to them get targeted, right? The policies that are most durable, that are most protected, have an advocacy community and a constituency that is seen by politicians as valuable and important. Yep. Well, you know, uh, Celeste, I'm going to interrupt you for a moment because, sure. and I put on my reading glasses because I have to share some phone numbers here. In a few minutes, we'll turn to your questions. And I hope you have uh, been listening and engaged in this conversation, this wonderful conversation. If you have questions for Dr. Celeste Watkin Hayes, text them to 330 541 5794. That's 330 541 five seven nine four you can also tweet them at the city club that's at the city club and we'll try to work them in so i'm, I'm sure there's folks with lots of questions so i could take my glasses off now okay. <laughs> <laughs> since i don't have to read the script at this point but i was i was really um in, uh, interested in, in the point you made earlier around uh we can learn lessons larger lessons mm -hmm. about what we could possibly do with our social safety net to actually move people 
so that they don't stay dependent and, and can move on to the next level in their lives. So just what are some, just a few of the lessons that we could learn from your study of how mm -hmm. people have learned to thrive in mm -hmm. the uh, AIDS HIV community? Right. Well, the first thing that I have to say is just the power of activism and community leadership in um, in quote unquote unexpected places. And I say quote unquote unexpected places is because, you know, many of the leaders in the AIDS community were known to be leaders within the community, but they weren't known to the mainstream, right? They weren't, they didn't look the part, if you will, when you think about who walks through the halls of our state houses and through Congress influencing policy. But these individuals nevertheless had a lot of very important things to say. Um, and I think that one of the biggest lessons when we think about how do you create safety nets that allow people to launch is you've got to invite community in to help shape what that looks like. They, they've lived the life, they've had the experiences, and they have really valuable perspectives to offer. So part of what I think is really important is the kind of bottom-up approach of the HIV um, safety net and the way that community insists on being involved in conversations that affect that community. There's a phrase called nothing about us without us that applies to policymaking and all kinds of decision making as it relates to people living with HIV. And I think we can really borrow that when we think about um, all kinds of safety net services where we routinely don't consult the people most affected before we decide what we think is best for that community. So that's the first thing that I would say. All right, how about that? Asking people what they need. Yes, yes, <laughs> how about that? How, how, how radical, about that? how radical right. is that? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And they, they're experts in their own lives, right? So, and then the second thing that I would say is not, we've got to figure out a way to help people understand that all of us, in fact, live with safety nets. We might be very affluent, but we may have had a parent who gave us our first uh, house loan, who gave us a brand new car or a used car to use when we were young, who helped us pay for college, who made sure that we had healthcare assistance, et cetera. We all have safety nets, but we don't think of it as safety nets. We just think of it as, well, that's just my family or that's just the support that I have. But when we think about it in those terms, we all have safety nets, we all need safety nets, then hopefully it lowers the stigma around conversations around for those who don't have that kind of familial safety net and those kinds of deep pockets of wealth, how are we gonna build safety nets for them? And to take the kind of negative valence off the idea of safety nets and the stigma of safety nets. We're and all standing on somebody's shoulder, right? We're all standing on somebody's shoulders. And it's it's frustrating to me that people often forget that or don't want to talk about what what they what they stand on and the policies they stood on. For example, the GI Bill. Think about how many of us are um, the children of veterans who were able to benefit from the GI Bill, when in fact, we have to remember many soldiers, particularly soldiers of color, black soldiers, never had access to the GI Bill, even though they fought. So that ability to get education, a first house, et cetera, that's a safety net service. So I, part Absolutely. of me wants, wants us to rethink what we, how we understand safety nets and to recognize that we need to be much more inclusive in terms of who gets access to um, those shoulders to stand on. Now, Celeste, I want to uh, 
want you to hold your thoughts on the other lessons learned because we have a couple questions. That oh, come wonderful. In, and I want to make sure we have time to get to those. Oh, let's do that for sure. Yeah, so the first question is, so many of my friends living with HIV here in Cleveland are black, gay, or some gender loving, oh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, or saying gender loving men. Can Dr. Watkins Hayes please take a bit, talk a bit more about intersectional stigma in relation to HIV? That's a great question. And the term intersectional stigma is such a great term. My colleague, Michelle Tracy Berger, writes about that in her book, Workable Sisterhood. And essentially what she's talking about is the idea that when people are stigmatized on the basis of race and gender, class, sexuality, and then you add HIV to that, and you're grappling with intersectional stigma. And it deeply concentrates the disadvantage in terms of what you're able to get access to and how you're able to move through the world. So what's important for us, for example, in this question is when we talk about, when people say things like, well, HIV is over in the gay community, um, the image that people have, if you think intersectionally, is of a white, gay, affluent man who that community hasn't completely eradicated HIV, but they have a lot more resources. They were the first targeted for PrEP, the first targeted for, for antiretroviral therapy, et cetera. Um, so yeah, there is a difference. But when we say gay community, we're thinking about, we're forgetting black and brown people, we're think, forgetting people of color. So what's happening is black gay men and, and, and same gender loving men find themselves marginalized on the basis of race, marginalized on the basis of sexuality, and a very real struggle where within the black community, they worry about coming out about their HIV status in terms of Will this mean I lose the only protective community that I know as I deal with this racism? And then with the gay community, this question of do I truly belong here given the racism that I'm facing in the LGBTQ community? So this experience of liminality of intersectional stigma means that people may find themselves especially vulnerable in terms of getting access to protective resources. And then when you layer HIV on top of that, it's in a further kind of intersectional stigma. Wow. Okay, moving on to question two. In Ohio, we face criminal laws that target people living with HIV and don't follow the science. What have you seen in terms of change in these types, in these kinds of stigmatizing laws? Are other states doing things differently than Ohio? And what could possibly be done to try to move Ohio in that direction based on this question? Right. That's a great question. So the, the, the question is about HIV criminalization laws and laws were put on the books in various states that basically criminalized HIV transmission. And when the person says they did, the laws don't follow the science, there's right, there's, for example, laws on the books where if a person living with HIV spits on another person, they could be held criminally liable. Well, we know that is not how HIV transmission happens. You know, and I but, remember the climate when those kind of laws. Yeah, there was about, such a fury and that. fear, yeah. et cetera. Um, around that. So a lot of those statutes have not been updated. So there is a movement underfoot um, by groups like the Cerro Project and um, the HIV Law Project to roll back those laws. Because we know, just as I said, if a person has an undetectable viral load, they can't sexually transmit HIV. 
And what's the impact of HIV criminalization laws when in fact we don't necessarily have criminalization laws for any other infectious diseases in this in quite the same way, right? We don't we don't prosecute people who say transmit COVID to somebody else or um, any number of other infectious diseases. And in fact, we actually have better medical capabilities to fight HIV right now than the fact that we do COVID. We're making quick advances with COVID, but we're not out of the woods with that yet. And we're still seeing a number of deaths. So part of what that movement is saying is not only are the laws outdated, but it's grounded in a, um, a homophobia, a racism, a real animus towards people disproportionately impacted by HIV in ways that say, are very problematic. I would say fear too, right? And because fear, there was so absolutely. much fear in the beginning. Yes. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So that was a great question reminding yeah. us about, you know, on this 40th anniversary of World AIDS Day, the work that needs to be done. I would say the conversation around, we're still experiencing almost 40,000 new infections. We need to target that and make sure that we get those numbers down, but also we need to address the, the criminalization laws that are still on the books. And working on maybe getting some of those, now that people, now that we know more, now that yes. people know more, maybe there'll be more of a appetite and an atmosphere where some changes could happen there. Absolutely. And we yes. have another question that's come in that what are the efforts being done for HIV positive and pregnant black women who already are dealing with high infant and maternal mortality rates? And we talk about that so much here in Cleveland because mm -hmm. um, our infant mortality and maternal mortality rates are really terrible and abysmal, especially for African-American women here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what efforts have been done to help? Yeah, that is a great question. So one of the big success stories was the Ryan White Care Act and HIV. And the Ryan White Care Act essentially funds medical services and healthcare services for people living with HIV, but also people at high risk. And there's a part of that law, Part D, that focuses on women and children. And I write about the history of that in my book. And I talk about how much of the impetus for that law was lowering the numbers of women living with HIV who were um, dealing with uh, transmission. So um, we used to call it mother to child transmission. We call it vertical transmission. The idea of how do we prevent HIV positive babies from being born. And what we learned was that if we're able to get mothers involved in prenatal care early, get them sustained in prenatal care, and get them taking antiretroviral therapy early on, we can prevent mother to child or vertical transmission. So that has been a huge breakthrough. And the United States actually has very, very, very low percentages of babies born living with HIV because of that. So we have the infrastructure. Where we're falling down is making sure that people are tapping into the infrastructure to make sure, because the other thing that we're learning about that is if a mother is dealing with crisis after crisis after crisis in her life, prenatal care is one of the things that's going to fall by the wayside if she's also dealing with housing instability, if she's also trying to work every hour that she can to be able to put food on the table, if she's dealing with a, a mental health issue. Not, you know, access to consistent prenatal care is more likely to fall by the wayside. And I should note that, you know, so many of these challenges that drive these factors are not unique to just black women, but it's the idea that black women don't have as much access to the resources to be able to address these things. So we know, for example, 
that even black women living in more resourced communities often live in communities that nevertheless are don't have as many resources as poor white mothers who are able to live in communities where there's a lot more resources and their whiteness makes it so that they can navigate that without facing discrimination in quite the same way. So it's really important for us to understand the drivers of why black women end up being so affected. And a lot of it has to do with how do we make sure consistent access to institutional resources are happening? Well, you know, you mentioned COVID-19 earlier, and I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about resources and possibility of resources shifting. So as we have been fighting this new virus, coronavirus, have you seen resources shifting away from AIDS research, for example, to coronavirus? And, and we're also seeing a lot of the same disparities mm -hmm. popping up with coronavirus as we see with AIDS, right? Right, right. And the, the kind of thread between HIV and COVID is that they're both what I call injuries of inequality. They are illnesses that are more that could happen to any of us that have a universal quality to them in terms of transmission, but disproportionately impact marginalized populations because even if an illness could affect us universally, we all have different levels of capability to protect ourselves from risk. Right. We all have different resources. So when COVID hit, for example, we learned quite quickly who are the most vulnerable, the people who could not stay home during shelter in place, who is more likely to be those folks, the folks working in the front lines and our, you know, grocery stores and our essential services and our healthcare places and et cetera, were more likely to be people of color. And that put them disproportionately in harm's way, in really critical ways. We also learned that people of color are more likely to live in housing environments that are more densely populated and concentrated. So if you're living in an apartment building or even in a home where there are multiple people living there, that puts you at, at greater risk as well because you're just interacting intimately with more people um, in ways that heighten your risk. So in some ways, what we learned from HIV absolutely helped us understand what was happening with COVID in terms of you've got to look at the, even though any of us can be affected by an illness, you've got to look at the social context that puts some more at risk than others. So that lesson definitely translates. And um, in terms of the kind of shifting of resources, I don't think we've quite seen that, but I think that we definitely have seen um, the way in which HIV has is receded even further in the kind of public consciousness and background because now the conversation is around COVID. But there are, you know, some differences. You don't see the activism around COVID in quite the same way that you see the activism around HIV. HIV was driven, that activism was driven by people who were living with HIV and their allies and supporters. The COVID activism that we've seen looks very different um in terms of what people are asking for and how they're mobilizing but one thing that we do see is a similarity is the the centrality of dr tony fauci who has a long history in the hiv world and um has been part of the fight against the epidemic 
um, for, you know, decades and decades, and then is, is very involved in the fight against COVID. So I, I think COVID a lot is of getting, his learning translates. Translated over. Mm-hmm. Dr. Fauci, he's just been, you know, been out there, you know, warrior for many years, right? Yeah. So um, even though, as you say, the activism has not been there, but you do see the resources there for COVID, to fight COVID. Yes. And I think that is because it was identified as universal. It could happen to anyone. Therefore, we'll put resources around it. And the problem with HIV from the beginning is because it got associated with gay men from the beginning, it immediately was framed as it happens to this small group of people. You know, then we figured out IV drug users seem to be disproportionately impacted. Um, you know, there were, you know, hemophiliacs back before we started testing the blood supply. There was a really, you know, there was a there was a part of the history where HIV was associated with Haitian populations and um, needing to kind of understand that dynamic. So there was a way in which those were all populations that were seen to be on the margins of quote unquote mainstream society. So HIV's history is much more uh an interpretation of it only affects certain people to a broader understanding of it. Whereas COVID from the beginning, well, not from the beginning, but from the beginning in the United States, when it started hitting nursing homes and et cetera, it had this feel of, okay, well, this could be anywhere kind of thing. And it could happen to anybody. So a couple more questions have come in. Uh, One question that came in is, what is the experience of HIV AIDS in the foreign born and immigrant communities and the efforts to reach out to them? That is a really um, great question because part of what we're also trying to understand, um, particularly as we're thinking about populations of color is is how much we need to think about the immigrant experience as we think about HIV outreach. And I I wrote about this a little bit in my book um, because I wrote about um, immigrants who were uh, Latinx, um, Latinas. And um, one of the things that was really interesting was their immigrant networks were sometimes so dense where they only kind of interacted with other immigrant communities um, that their access to information was pretty limited. And also because they often didn't qualify for state services, they didn't necessarily have as much access to the HIV safety net and all of its services. So they were more likely to be kind of navigating life in the labor market and you know trying to eke out an existence there um, because they sometimes were working off the books or they were they were working on the books, but they were their status was was undocumented in ways that made them nervous about interfacing with the healthcare system or they were documented, but they just didn't have the information to be able to navigate the HIV safety net um, in in the ways that that other women were able to who had networks that were that were a little bit more um, disparate. Okay, so another question that came in, this is going back to about laws that criminalize HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. Do these laws discourage people to get tested or to take medication? Absolutely. This is a huge this is a huge critique that the public health community articulates around HIV criminalization laws. And thank you for that question. Their argument is that people are going to be less likely to be tested 
if they're worried about criminalization. And there is some evidence that people worry about, you know, once I know my status, what does this mean? Not just in terms of criminalization, but just in terms of everyday stigma, right? Um, of, you know, what does this mean for my relationships and all of these other dynamics and the ways in which I move through the community. So if we wanted lower those 40,000 new infections every year, we've got to lower the stigma around HIV because it encourages people to get tested. Think about COVID, for example. COVID was highly stigmatized in some of the earlier parts. And now people are talking about, well, I got a COVID diagnosis or um, someone passed away from COVID that I love um, and not feeling a sense of shame about that. Um, part of that is because there's been what people telling their stories and us seeing so many different examples of people living with COVID and dying from COVID from all kinds of walks of life. And, yes, it famous lowered, people. Famous, famous people. people. It lowered the stigma. Yeah. And what happens when you lower the stigma? People aren't necessarily afraid to get tested, right? People aren't necessarily afraid to um, to talk about their bouts with COVID and experiences with COVID in quite the same way. So, and that's not to say there's no COVID stigma, but I think you, you definitely see yeah, it yeah. lessen than it was at the beginning of HIV. Well, I think because COVID has become so politicized, yeah. there's still stigma in certain communities. You know, yeah. for example, one of our reporters did went to the Amish community in Ohio mm -hmm. and uh, found that many people in the Amish community were sneaking and getting the uh, mm -hmm. vaccine. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in their community, you shouldn't, you know, take all these medicines and do vaccines and things like that. So there are some places where it's still stigmatized. Right. Absolutely. And it's interesting that it's stigma against the vaccine. It's stigma against the, the preventative measure, which is really interesting, as opposed to the illness, illness itself. So, right. A different know, dynamic with COVID. Different yeah. dynamic, right? But going <laughs> yeah. back to the question of, you know, the heart of that question is, um, when we enforce punitive measures, this is the bottom line. When we enforce punitive measures, whether it's laws or socially punitive measures like stigma, people go in the shadows. Yeah. Okay, we got one more question. Let's make sure we get it in before we run out of time. Can you speak to the role of affordable women's health clinics with respect to HIV AIDS prevention and mitigation and the ramifications of the closure of these clinics? What are the alternatives if, the, if these clinics close for low-income women and women of color? Oh, this is such a concern because mm -hmm. when we think about women's health clinics that are offering HIV services, and a lot of them have come under fire for uh, 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 providing abortion services as well. And when we focus solely on the abortion issue, we don't recognize all of the other things that these clinics are doing, including HIV, HIV testing, prevention, getting women access to PrEP. We have a tool that's useful in PrEP, but the take up in women is abysmal. And those clinics are key sites that could help turn that dynamic around. Like Planned so, Parenthood, for example, exactly is that an example? Like Planned Parenthood. So we, I, I want us to be more expansive in recognizing all of the different work that those institutions are doing. And also going back to my book, what I observed when women were going in for HIV care, medical care, they were sitting in the waiting room. They were talking to other women. They were sharing information. They were providing support to each other. Sometimes the conversations were just quick, casual five minute exchanges of, oh, you know, I just overheard you talking about X, Y, and Z. Have you been to such and such? Or have you thought about such and such? And sometimes, unfortunately, if the waits were so long, people were there for hours together and would have these conversations. I observed one woman where 
she was she was living with HIV and pregnant and her doctor's appointments were on the same cycle as another group of women. So she saw them every doctor's appointment in the waiting room and they became friends and ended up sharing a lot of information with each other. So we can't underestimate the concrete things that these institutions are doing in terms of giving people access to HIV preventative and treatment services, but also the the subtle unspoken things that these spaces provide where women are at the center, where they have access to each other, they can share information, they can gather support. We can't underestimate the power of that. And when those institutions become threatened, all of that stuff becomes threatened as well. That's great, that informal exchange of information. Mm -hmm. Well, Celeste, uh, I had to interrupt you earlier when you were talking about some of the larger lessons from your book. And that might be a great way for us to wrap up here because you spent a lot of time uh, talking to women who are living you know, this experience and to activists and to others. And you, you know, you encapsulated all those lessons in your book for us. So mm -hmm. what are some, again, some of the larger lessons that we didn't get to, to get to earlier in the conversation? Well, I think I would just reiterate, we have the, the power to solve so many of our challenges today, but it requires us to work together. It, it requires us to listen to community. It requires us to be generous and expansive in how we understand and inclusive in how we understand safety nets and who should get access to safety nets. And in this very polarized time, I'm hoping that today and tomorrow, as we think about World AIDS Day, we recognize the work that needs to get done in terms of lowering the number of new infections, making sure that people continue to get access to services, addressing those criminal statutes. But also we recognize the success of our HIV response and to think about what happens when people come together, scientists, activists, policymakers, the lay public, what happens when people come together to move the needle on a seemingly impossible problem? So how is Dawn doing? Is she still thriving despite she is still thriving despite and um daisy who i wrote about in the book the little girl is now in college oh that's wonderful to yes. hear what's she studying do you know yes i don't know what she's studying last time i talked to dawn um she was a first year student so still trying to figure it out in terms of the major you know dawn's story was was so gripping to me because she was so honest what do you think it was that made the women who did come and talk to you, what made? What do you think it, it was that made them wanna open up about their stories? I think we had an awesome team. So I should shout out the interviewers, my students, my graduate students who did a lot of the interviews with me. And we really tried to cultivate a culture of respect and empathy as we heard women's stories. But I, but I think really women wanted to be able to share their stories to influence the debate and the conversation so that others might be helped, to be able to talk about just how important the Ryan White Healthcare Act is in, in terms of this you know, policy on the books that may seem just like this arcane policy actually has real world implications. And also for women to be recognized for the activism that they participated in. And, you know, they might not have been in the documentary films and the evening news and the ones who were so visible in terms of the face of HIV activism, but they were nevertheless there and toiling away. And I think that they they wanted to tell their stories so that that could be recognized as well. So I was I was really honored 
to be um, to be trusted with 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 their narratives. Well, you know, I appreciate the fact that, that you put black women in the spotlight in your book and that you're talking about this most important topic at this most important time. Thank you, Dr. Celeste Watkin Hayes, for sharing this information with us today and sharing your uh, expertise on this topic with the Cleveland community. And I'm going to turn it over to Cynthia now to close us out. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Marlene. Excellent questions. And to the folks out there, thank you for your questions. All right. And thank you both for joining us here today, as well as to Julie Patterson with the AIDS Funding Collaborative. And thank you for joining us uh, for today's virtual forum, which is the Medical Mutual of Ohio Endowed Forum on Healthcare, featuring Dr. Celeste Walken-Hayes, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Founding Director of the Center for Racial Justice at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. She is also the author of Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV AIDS Confront Inequality. Today's conversation was moderated by Marlene Harris-Taylor, reporter and producer at IdeaStream Public Media. Today's forum was sponsored by the AIMS Funding Collaborative and is the final forum of the year, part of our Health Equity Series in partnership with Sisters of Charity Health System and the St. Luke's Foundation, as well as our Author and Conversation Series in partnership with the John P. Murphy Foundation and Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to all of our sponsors for their support. Thank you as well to our community partners, the LGBT Community Center of Greater Cleveland, the May Dugan Center, We Think for a Change, the Centers, Ursula Piazza, and Healthcare Access Worldwide, Inc. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free thanks to general support from Bank of America, PNC, and the Northeast Ohio Sewer District. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission today, which is Giving Tuesday. Here at the City Club, we're giving you the opportunity to pay what you wish for a membership at the City Club. That's right. All you have to do is make a donation of at least $5 and you'll receive a Civic Citizen membership for the next year. If you are already a member of the City Club, maybe you have a friend that might enjoy it too, or consider sharing this one day only opportunity with them. Or even better, gift a membership to a special civic enthusiast in your life. To sign up for your Giving Tuesday City Club membership, visit cityclub.org slash donate. And finally, be sure to join us on Friday, December 10th, in person at the City Club. We will be welcoming David Harris, CEO of the American Jewish Committee. Tickets are still available for this forum, and you can purchase them and learn more about our other forums at cityclub.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Cynthia Connolly. Our forum is adjourned.